So our reading this morning is from Isaiah 55, reading from the first verse. Come, all you who are thirsty, come to the waters. And you who have no money, come buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk, without money and without cost. Why spend money on what is not bread, and your labor on what does not satisfy? Listen, listen to me, and eat what is good, and your soul will delight in the richest of fare. Give ear and come to me. Hear me that your soul may live. I will make an everlasting covenant with you, my faithful love promised to David. See, I have made him a witness to the peoples, a leader and a commander of the peoples. Surely you will summon nations you know not, and nations that you do not know you will hasten to you. Because the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, for he has endowed you with splendor. Seek the Lord where he may be found. Call on him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his ways and the evil man his thoughts. Let him turn to the Lord, and he will have mercy on him, and to our God, for he will freely pardon. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. As the rain and the snow come down from heaven, and do not return to it without watering the earth and making it bud and flourish so that it yields seed to the sower and bread to the eater. So is my word that goes out from my mouth. It will not return to me empty, but will accomplish what I desire and achieve the purpose for which I sent it. You will go out in joy and be led forth in peace the mountains and hills will burst into song before you, and all the trees of the field will clap their hands. Instead of the thorn bush will grow the pine tree. Instead of the briars, the myrtle will grow. This will be for the Lord's renown, for an everlasting sign, which will not be destroyed. Thanks be to God. Thanks, Ian. Happy New Year, everyone. Um, you'll be pleased to know that we're not going to deal with the Greek, or I suppose, actually, this being Isaiah, it would be the Hebrew. Um, although I imagine this is Oxford and this is St Andrews, so there's probably a number of you out there who could cope quite comfortably with the Hebrew. But it would help if you just kept that open in front of you as we go through this. So let's pray together. So is my word that goes out of my mouth. It will not return to me empty. Father God, as we come to your word, we ask that it will speak to our hearts, that your spirit will enable it to fill us. Amen. New Year then. Excitement, maybe. I don't know how you're feeling about this coming year, if you've given it much thought. It may be an, uh, an exciting prospect for you. It may be one that you're very worried about. You may be expecting a lot of change. It may just be more of the same. 
And as a church, of course, we're looking forward uh, to an exciting year in 2012 and all the things that we're planning and want to do as a church, of course, looming very large over all of those as we look ahead this year is the fact that for a number of months we're going to have to keep Andrew from getting overexcited about the Olympics. But as a church, we may have a very important year indeed. Now this passage, I believe, is given to us this morning very specifically because as a new, uh, when we come to our new year and we look forward, God wants to ask us a couple of questions. The context from the, for this passage is that it's the final, the 16th chapter in a section, uh, chapters 44 to 55 in Isaiah, written for the exiles in Babylon. So the whole piece, the whole series of chapters is looking forward. It's a, a prophecy about what is going to happen. The basic premise of these chapters is that the time of salvation has come and God can be believed when he promises it to his people. It's a promise of salvation and the key agent uh, is the servant. And we've had a fabulous series with Paul looking at these servant songs over the last few weeks. And if you've missed those, do go to the website and hook into them. So here we are then. How do we respond to this prophecy, these promises? And this final chapter, if you like, is the pinnacle of that prophecy, that hymn to uh, the renewal that Israel will uh, experience. But of course, as in all of Isaiah, the prophecy is not just for the people of Israel. It's for us here now. It was looking ahead to Christ and looking even further ahead uh, in the future of the work of redemption here on earth. So this morning, let's have a quick look at the passage and then we will try and uh, dig out a little bit about what it can mean to us. So three sections I've chosen to divide it into. There's an appeal uh, in the first six verses, an appeal. And then there's a challenge in verses 7 to 9, and then there's a promise in verses 10 through to 13. So an appeal, a challenge, and a promise. So let's start with these first few verses. All of this chapter, I suspect, you are going... Ah, so that's where that comes from. There's a lot of verses in here that we recognize and speak to us. And of course, this first verse, as the chapter begins, is one of those, Come, all you are thirsty, come to the waters, and you who have no money, come buy and eat. This is an appeal that Isaiah is making to the people of Israel in exile in Babylon. Come and find true nourishment. Nourishment without cost. Now, this is not because it's beneath cost. It is because it is beyond price. This is nourishment. This is uh, drink for your thirst and food for your hunger that cannot be bought. It cannot be bought. Why is he making this appeal? Well, it's interesting. I, I, I suspect our picture of uh, the Israelites in exile in Babylon is, is encompassed round by the idea of people sitting by the rivers of Babylon and weeping. We, we sing about that. By the rivers of Babylon we lay down and wept. It is in the scripture. But there was something else going on as well. In fact, for a lot of the exiles, they were very comfortable, thank you very much. They had assimilated into the culture. Babylon was the leading city in the known world at the time. So they were surrounded by influence. They were surrounded by material well-being. And they had seen power at work 
which apparently was greater than the power of Jehovah in their own land, in Jerusalem. Jerusalem had been crushed. And here they were, next to the seat of power that worked. They were in a community and in an environment that worked. And this appeal is partially designed to jolt them out of that, is to say, look, with all its enticements, with all its attraction, with all its materiality, with all its power, God wants something greater for you, which will be accomplished when you leave here and return to the promised land. And it's not uh, just a physical return, it's a spiritual return, of course. The promised land is still the land of physical and spiritual fulfillment. We see that in verse 2. And in verse 3, we have this wonderful phrase, that your soul, uh, that your soul may live. Uh, another way of translating that, possibly a better way of translating it, would be that you will experience fullness of life. And immediately we get the echo of what Jesus promises in John 10.10. I have come that you may have life and have it in all its fullness. And here the prophecy is that life will be experienced in fullness uh, at the time of return, at the time of the reinstatement of Jerusalem and the spiritual reawakening and return of the people. So it is a call to his people, to God's people, to step out, to step out in faith and come and find the truly lasting food and drink. It's an appeal not just to the needy, but also to those who may feel they have no need at all. And then he talks about the fact that the covenant that was made with David, you can look at it in 2 Samuel 7 if you want to go back there at some point, this covenant that God makes with David, that his line will last forever, that the, the fulfillment of the people will come through uh, David and his line, that covenant with the renewal, with the spiritual return of the people will be now spread to the whole people. It's interesting that in the chapters preceding this, the servant is the focus through which God acts. In this final chapter of this section, Isaiah says, look, actually, not just the servant, you as a people have a calling to spread the word, to spread spiritual renewal to all the nations. Nations that you do not even know. Britain. We are one of those nations that they didn't even know. And here we are, recipients of God's salvation. The covenant made to David is now made with the whole of God's people and then those who are saved through the suffering servant. And as we come to the end of this particular section, in verse 6, we start shifting from the appeal to the challenge. Seek the Lord. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call on him while he is near. You're never too far away. He may be found. He is near now. No matter what you're doing, where you are, he wants you to find him and to move on. So next the challenge then, the following verses, three verses, seven to nine. Seek the Lord while he may be found. And then let the wicked forsake his way and the evil man his thoughts. Now we have to be quite clear about this. We may not think of ourselves as wicked or evil, and I'm sure 
we never intend to be wicked or evil. But as the next two verses make clear, we are all in this boat simply because of the gulf that separates us from the mind, heart and actions of Almighty God and our own humanity. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways. It's an astonishing statement and I've been struggling with this. And then I was watching a, a TV series recently by Professor Brian Cox on the wonders of the universe. I don't know if any of you have seen it. Brian Cox is a, a brilliant communicator. And this was a program on gravity and he talked about black holes, these extraordinary phenomena that, comes out, that, came, that come out of collapsing stars. Now in a black hole, the black hole is so dense, its gravitational power is so great that it actually sucks in matter itself. The space that surrounds us, if you can imagine that, would get sucked into this black hole because of the force of the gravitational pull. And as that matter, the space and time continuum, as Einstein called it, passes into the black hole, it goes over something called the event horizon. And as it does that, it's moving at the speed of light. Light itself cannot escape the gravitational pull of the black hole. So if I was standing on the edge of one now and jumped out of this pulpit, by the time I hit the floor, I would be doing 300,000 kilometers per second. Okay, so that's the kind of power we're talking about. And as it goes over the event horizon, space and light, light cannot escape it. Light, matter, and space, and therefore time, goes over the edge into the black hole. Now what happens then, according to Einstein's general theory of relativity, he said glibly, not really knowing it at all, but having understood a little bit about this program, what happens then is that Einstein posited that all of that space-time continuum becomes infinitely curved and the center of the black hole has infinite density. Infinite density. And Brian Cox stood there and said, and at that point, which is called the singularity, at that point, our understanding stops. At that point, at the singularity, science throws up its hands and says, this does not compute anymore. Science stops its understanding. And I think Isaiah is pointing us to something here when he says, my ways are not your ways. My thoughts are not your thoughts. Higher than the heavens from the earth is the gulf between us. He is talking about this conceptual gap in our knowledge. Science has a conceptual gap. It cannot understand what's going on there. And we have that conceptual gap to the mind and heart of God. That is the gulf that is there. And that is one of the challenges that we have. But of course, but of course, it doesn't end there. Because, wonder of wonders, we have been given a glimpse into that heart and that mind of God. And that is the promise now we come to uh, in the next few verses. Uh, verses 10 to uh, 13. I have to say, these uh, first two verses, 10 and 11, are some of the most extraordinary verses in scripture. It's one of the most extraordinary promises. And if I think I would 
wish a text on us for the coming year, it would be these two verses. We should take these away and think them through. So let's just read them uh, as they uh, stand in front of us. As the rain and snow come down from heaven and do not return to it without watering the earth and making it bud and flourish so that it yields seed for the sower and bread for the eater, so is my word that goes out from my mouth. It will not return to me empty, but will accomplish what I desire and achieve the purpose for which I sent it. Water is the staff of life, we say. Another thing, actually, that um, Brian Cox has said in these programs is that wherever there is water, there is life. And so when scientists look out into the heavens to see about the possibility of life somewhere in the universe, one of the things they do is they look for water. And here, thousands of years before we've understood that, is this wonderful picture of the life-giving nature of water. I don't know how Isaiah was given this picture, but somehow he understood the idea of precipitation and evaporation, this idea of the cycle of water going round. But most importantly is what it does during that cycle. It gives life. Without it, there is no life. And here we have a glimpse into the mind and heart of God. God's word, his logos, his memra, God's spirit, his word incarnate comes down and gives life. And it does not return until it has accomplished the purpose for which it was sent. That's the promise that we have before us for this coming year. If we move into the heart and mind of God a little, as much as we can, if we place ourselves be before his word as individuals and as a church, here is the promise, the word of God will accomplish that which it set out to do. And the result of this unstoppable purpose, the result of this irresistible force, well, there it is in verses 12 and 13. We have fulfillment. We have nature itself being fulfilled and we have spiritual fulfillment. You will go out in joy and be led forth in peace. There is abundance on offer. And here are these people in a foreign land. And here is the promise. God's purposes will be accomplished and there will be fulfillment and abundance. And I believe that that is the promise that God makes for us today. So what are we to take from these particular verses right now as we stand on the threshold of 2012? Well, I, I think that the response is best couched in a couple of questions. So I would want to leave us with just two questions to take away. The first question is this. And it's a question for us as individuals and also for us as a church. Are we thirsty? Are we thirsty? Are we like the exiles in Babylon? While they were second-class citizens, a lot of them were very happy to be there. They were safe. They were materially well off. Look, they said, it works. Babylon works. Are we thirsty? Are we comfortable in how we are? Do we thirst for God's presence? Do we thirst for life to the full? You can have the biggest feast in the world laid out before you. I experienced one last night in our New Year's celebrations. But unless you are thirsty, unless you are hungry, it is purposeless. 
it will still sit there. Are we thirsty? Are we thirsty for the embrace of God's purposes in our lives? Do we thirst for that which brings life to the full? Or do we say, well, if it happens, it will be lovely, it will be nice. We are content. So that's the first question I think we have to answer as we go into this year. Are we thirsty for that word, for the Spirit of God to inhabit us, to fulfill us and to give us full life? The second question is, do we really believe that God will break in? Do we really believe that God will break into our life as individuals and collectively as a church? Do we really believe verses 10 and 11? Do we really think that something supernatural can happen to us? That we can engage with forces that are beyond rationality? We sit in a university town, one of the oldest and best in the world. It's a temple, if you like, to rationality. And God has given us rational minds. In fact, it's one of the arguments for a creator is the fact that there is rationality. But there is also something beyond. Rationality is not the whole answer. It is just a starting point. And just as wherever water is found on the earth, life is found, wherever water is found, Life is found just the same way. We have to want God to break in, to provide that water of life in our experience day by day as individuals and as a church. Do we live powered by that life giving spiritual water, the word of God? Do we expect the world around us and ourselves to work quite happily without it? Do we really understand that God's thoughts and ways are not divine, defined by what we see around us? by materiality, by rationality? And do we want to live tapped in to the source of true power and life? I said at the outset this morning that I don't have any idea about your expectations for the coming year, whether you enter it hopeful, excited, or depressed and worried, whether you're expecting change or whether you're expecting just more of the same. But this word, I believe, that we have shared this morning promises that no matter what we bring, no matter what we bring, the promises of God are that we can access miracles of abundance, access to the fullest life in the coming year and in all the years that God gives us. The challenge is, do we really want it? Are we really thirsty? And do we believe that God will break in? Amen.